Morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for revealing yourself to us. We, we praise you for revealing yourself to us through King Jesus. We thank you that he reigns in us. And we pray that as we open our Bibles this morning, your Holy Spirit would minister to us by granting Christ to be exalted all the more through the preaching of the Word and through its application in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see our own hearts rightly, that we would, that we would see where Christ is appropriately exalted in us and, and where he is not. And that where he is not, that we would lament these things and that they would be rectified by the power of your Holy Spirit and that Christ would be exalted above all things in our lives. We need your help in this and we pray for it with great boldness because of your long history of kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, as you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me. For the sake of context and flow, we're going to read the whole first chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the world of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Or to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You may be seated. I want you to think for just a moment about your online profile. You may have several of them. I know some of us have multiple different online profiles. Just grab one of those that you can think of off the top of your head. Most of us have at least some kind of online pre presence where we've got a profile where we present to the universe what is important to us. So I want you to think about that for a second. What is it that you're presenting to the universe through this online profile or whatever? Here's what's important to me. And, and I just wanted to suggest to you the possibility 
that your actual profile, what is really important to you, what you're really passionate about, is, is quite dynamic. That is, it ebbs and flows from day to day, maybe from hour to hour even, depending upon your circumstances, upon the choices you make, your loves, your fears, your pains, your joys, they are they're magnified, they're minimized relative to one another such that it's possible that your, your, your actual profile may not look at all like your online profile at any given moment. You get what I'm trying to say? For example, let's say that I have a major trial going on in my life and it's all I think about and perhaps the fear of what's going to happen is so big in my mind and heart that that's really what I'm all about. Even though online I say, I'm all about reading good literature and taking long prayer walks in the woods. Or, maybe in the midst of that trial, I've found a go-to coping mechanism, some kind of safety valve. And it could be an innocuous thing like gardening. That would never be the thing for me, but maybe it would be for you. Maybe, maybe it's an innocuous thing like gardening or something like that. Maybe it's not so innocuous like drunkenness. But though my online profile says something like husband, father, Christ, follower, it, it might be more accurate to say that what is most important to me, what's central to me right now, is that coping mechanism, whatever that is. It could be the case that my, my, my actual profile, what's really important to me, what is exalted or magnified in my life, it changes quite a bit. And the problem with that is that what can happen if we're not intentional, if, if, if we're not intentional about keeping an eye on this, is that these things can become magnified relative to the Lord Jesus. And, and this can go from like a, a momentary lapse to a season to a lifestyle such that it, it's actually the norm that other things or many other things are magnified above the Lord Jesus such that we are drifting from faith and from faithful discipleship. Now, this is, this is just what the author of Hebrews is concerned about regarding his original recipients. They were experiencing a trial in the, in the form of opposition from the world. And that's not so unusual, right? I mean, many of us have experienced opposition from the world. That's the case with the church throughout church history. We, we, we can all relate to that. The world hates the true follower of the Lord Jesus. And that's because the world lies in the power of, of the evil one, the mortal enemy of God and, and of His Christ. And so, it's unpopular to name the name of Jesus and to faithfully follow Him. And so, the world brings all kinds of pressures to bear on Christ's followers. And then a perennial temptation, not just a temptation of the original recipients of the book of Hebrews, but a perennial temptation throughout time then is to look for a way to relieve that pressure. And one form of, of pressure relief is to shrink back from faithful discipleship. For the original recipients, that temptation was taking the form of, of the, the, the temptation to retreat to their former lives in Old Testament Judaism. Judaism at the time, it was a recognized religion. There wasn't anywhere near the flack associated with Judaism as there was with this, with this new Christianity. And so some of the original recipients were thinking, well, shoot, we should just go back to Judaism because my, life, life was much easier for us then. And Judaism or the Old Covenant was believed to be mediated by angels. And so there's this danger that the message of angels was being elevated or magnified in the minds and hearts of these believers as a potential relief from the trouble of following Jesus. And so 
the author of Hebrews begins to deal with that by presenting to these readers that there is one being, one being who deserves to be exalted to the place of ultimate worship and prominence, and it is Jesus, not angels, the mediators of the Old Covenant. Now, the vast majority of us don't face the temptation to revert to Old Testament Judaism or the, or, or the, the Old Covenant. However, there could be any number of loves, fears, pains, joys rising to a position of exalted status in our lives relative to the Lord Jesus. The danger in that is that in the absence of intentional exaltation of Jesus, then we begin to drift, drift, drift. So, while the author of Hebrews is magnifying Christ over the angels in chapter 1, what what we want to do is we want to follow his reasoning and apply it appropriately by magnifying Christ over whatever is vying for our allegiance, our affections, our fascination, our longing, because, as the author of Hebrews teaches here, Christ reigns over all as Creator and Lord. He must be exalted in our minds and hearts. Now, last time we, we, we covered the first point in your notes, and so we'll just gloss over that again to pick up a little bit of steam. So Jesus, the, the, the big picture here is that Jesus is superior to the angels because He's the Son. And again, we won't rehash that. All that Davidic math from, from the first, first part of this message that we looked at last time. Just recall that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, which is to say, He is the divine God-man King, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That's last time. That's verse 5. He's the Son. Now moving into the, the, the second point in your notes, whom the angels worship and serve. He is the Son whom the angels worship and serve. Now look, look with me again at verse 6. And again... When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When when the author refers to God bringing the firstborn into the world, he's talking about Jesus' resurrection and subsequent exaltation. That is, he's he's referring to bringing the firstborn into the heavenly world. If If you're taking notes, you might write down 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. It's that same idea that the author of Hebrews is using here. Firstborn here is a reference to resurrection and exaltation, not literal birth into life like the first time. He's he's talking about His resurrection from the dead. Now the author is also going to use this same word world. He's going to use this same word world in Hebrews 2.5 to refer to that heavenly world. Again, we'll return to this idea again momentarily, but for the author of Hebrews, the enthronement of the Son is due to His cross work, His resurrection, and His ascension. So that's what, he, that's what He's got in mind when He says, when He brings the firstborn into the world, upon the finished work of Christ, God said, let all God's angels worship Him. Now that, verse 6, is a quotation of either Deuteronomy 32.43 or Psalm 97.7. Some commentators would say, the, the, the author of Hebrews, he's mixing the two. It's, it's both of those. And so, I don't have a hard position on this. I think it could be, it could be any of those positions. Now, if, if you're reading the English Standard Version, and if you were to flip back to Psalm 97.7, what you would find there is, worship Him all you gods, rather than worship Him all His angels. And that's because that's how the Hebrew version reads. The Hebrew version reads, worship Him all you gods. For the most part, the New Testament authors, they used the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is what we call the the Septuagint. 
So sometimes when we go back to the Old Testament and we look at an original context that's been quoted in the New Testament, we find that they don't match up exactly. And that, that shouldn't trouble us because we're just de- dealing with different ancient translations. And, and here it certainly shouldn't trouble us that, we, that, that one old ancient translation says, says, worship Him all you gods. Another one says, worship Him all you angels. Because we know that in the Old Testament... Frequently, angels were, were referred to as gods or as sons of God. And so the Septuagint reads, Worship Him, all you His angels. It means the same thing as the Hebrew version. Worship Him, all you gods. And Psalm 97 begins with, Yahweh is King. And then you get down to verse 7. Let all God's angels worship Him. That is, Let all God's angels worship Yahweh the King. That's the sense of of Psalm 97 from which the author of Hebrews likely is pulling. Now, the the author of Hebrews has no qualms at all about taking that psalm and and using it to refer to Jesus Christ. Now, how, How can he do that? It's because of all that preceding Davidic math that we took so much time looking at last time. The development of the Davidic promise indicated that the coming king would himself be Yahweh, as we saw in Psalm 2. I'll give you another example of this identification of the Davidic king with Yahweh in Jeremiah 23 on the blog this week. So if you missed that, you can go back and, and catch that. The Davidic king would be called Yahweh our righteousness. The Davidic king is Yahweh. So that's Psalm 97. If the author is pulling from Deuteronomy 32, or if he's mixing the two, if we were to go over to Deuteronomy 32.43, we would find there that, that Yahweh is depicted as slaying the enemies of God. Okay, Again, it's Yahweh slaying the enemies of God. And upon that slaying of His enemies, He says in the Septuagint, let all the sons of God worship Him, let all the angels of God Confirm Him. Once again, the author of Hebrews, he's got no problems at all taking that passage and applying it to Jesus Christ. How can he do that? Because he's just noted in Psalm 2 that the Son does that work. The Son does that work of of bringing justice to all the enemies of God. And so, if in Deuteronomy 32, the angels are called to worship Yahweh for slaughtering all of His enemies, and if Psalm 2 says that it's the Son that does that work of slaughtering God's enemies, well, that means that when the angels are worshiping Yahweh for that work, they are worshiping the Son who is Yahweh. See, all of these things are connected together. The angels worship the Son. This is the point that the author of Hebrews is making. Angels worship the Son. Now look at verse 7. Hebrews 1.7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This comes from Psalm 104, which Pastor Dan read for us this morning. Of all of these Old Testament quotations that we find in Psalm 1, this is the only one that doesn't have the Son as its subject. It has the angels as its subject, and yet... It serves to magnify the Son by showing the status of the angels. So let's, let's, let's take a step back just for a second before we think about what it says about the angels. And let's, let's be reminded of what has been said about the Son. The Son sat down at the highest authority in the universe upon His resurrection from the dead. He sits at the highest authority in the universe. And then the author, by all these Old Testament references chosen thus far, he has identified the Son with Yahweh. He's saying the Son is God. In Psalm 104, Yahweh is depicted as the grand creator of of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. Then what does he say about the angels? While they are magnificent beings, they are far lower than Yahweh. They're not equated with, with, with Yahweh like the sun is. They're far lower than Yahweh. Angels are the agents that Yahweh uses in His work. They are created servants and messengers. And given that the sun is Yahweh, it is the sun then whom the angels worship and serve. So with, with all of this, the, the, the author is serving to, to say to the the, the original readers, hey, hey, look, let, let's, let's take a look at these beings that, that you have been tempted to magnify 
to a, a wrong position relative to Christ. And let's see what the Scriptures have to say about them relative to Jesus. Let's put them in their rightful place. We're not demeaning them. We're thinking about them rightfully relative to the Son. They worship Him who is God. So Jesus is superior to the angels because He is the Son whom the angels worship and serve. And now think, think about your profile your actual profile, these, these loves, fears, pains, joys, these things of late that, that may have been magnified above the Lord Jesus, and, and just think in a preliminary way about, about how the author of Hebrews might lead you to say, wow, some of these things have gotten out of whack, and Christ needs to be way up here compared to this love, joy, pain, pleasure fear. Jesus is superior to the angels because He is the Son whom the angels worship and serve. Thirdly, who reigns over all. The Son reigns over all. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So very simply, just in a nutshell, the author teaches here that Jesus Christ reigns over all. But the Old Testament quotation tells us why He reigns, which is significant for the, for the flow of thought here in chapter 1. Now, this comes from Psalm 45, and I encourage you in your own time to read all of Psalm 45. It's, it's very helpful. This is a, a royal psalm. It's a psalm that's intended to be sung to the Davidic king. The king is addressed throughout, so it's, it's obvious from the very beginning that, that this, this psalm is being addressed to a human king, okay? It's talking to a man. And right in the middle are these striking verses wherein the king is addressed as God. And you, O God, your throne, O God. So the king is addressed as God. And he is said to have been anointed by God. What a peculiar thing, right? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, speaking to the king. The king is God. And... God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So the king is anointed by God. How do you make sense of this? The only thing that makes sense of this is a Trinitarian framework. The coming of Christ makes sense of this. God the Son has been anointed by God the Father. Okay. Now, why has the Son been anointed king? Why does He reign? Why has the Father anointed Him with oil? By the way... That, that, that anointing with oil, that's, that's just a way of saying that the Father has installed Him as King. The Father has anointed the Son King because He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, in the context of the rest of Hebrews 1, we can and should say that Jesus fulfilled the duty given to Him by the Father to reconcile sinners through Two different ways. There, there, there are two com components to the work that Jesus did in reconciling sinners. We, we refer to these, these two components as active obedience and passive obedience. And the author of Hebrews refers to active obedience, which is Jesus' righteous life here in this, this reference to Psalm 45. His righteous life leads to His being exalted as King. And then there's His passive obedience, which is His atoning death. And His atoning death, the author has referred to back in Hebrews 1.4, where he mentions Jesus, having made, purification, having made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. His resurrection from the dead showed all of these things to be sufficient to save men from sin and death. And what, what all of this means is that the Son reigns on an eternal throne with a scepter of uprightness as a result of 
His righteous life, His atoning cross, and His empty tomb. What angel ever did anything like any of that? Which of your loves, your fears, your joys ever did anything like any of that? Nothing belongs on the same plane in your mind and heart as the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the the author of Hebrews is saying. Nothing belongs on the same plane as the Lord Jesus Christ. God has never said any of these things to anyone but the Son. Jesus is better than the angels because He is the Son whom the angels worship and serve, who reigns over all as eternal Creator and Lord. He reigns over all as eternal Creator and Lord. Look at verse 10 now. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, this quotation comes from Psalm 102, which extols Yahweh as the eternal creator and sustainer of all things. Now, we saw in Hebrews 1-2 that the Father created all things through the agency of the Son. And given all the other Old Testament references since then, identif- identifying the Son with Yahweh, it shouldn't surprise us at all to find that the author easily applies Psalm 102 to Jesus Christ. Now, thus far, most of the things making the Son superior to the angels relate to the Son's work in the incarnation, that is, the work of His humanity. But here with Psalm 102, the author chooses a reference showing Christ is superior to the angels due to His divinity. Because by Psalm 102, he teaches that the Son created all things. The, the earth and the heavens. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Heaven and earth, th- this is biblical shorthand for everything. If, you're, if we were to go back to Genesis 1-1 and, and, and read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that, that is not the Bible telling us that God created two things, dirt and atmosphere. That is the Bible telling us that God created everything. And so here... When, when he reaches back to Psalm 102 and it says that, that you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands, this is him saying, of the Son, you did it all. There is, there is nothing that has been created that was not created by the Son. Very similar to what John says in the first verses of the Gospel of John. So the Son has created everything. The author uses that truth then to emphasize the Son's eternality. The Son always was. That's necessary if He created everything. That that comes from verse 10. He always will be. That comes from verses 11 and 12. They will perish. The heavens and earth will perish. All things will perish. Man will perish. Later in Hebrews, we'll find in, in chapter 9, 27, it's appointed to man to die, but the Son remains. All creation wears out and is replaced. Not the eternal Son. He is the same. His years have no end. He is eternal. Of what angel can that be said? Of which of your loves can that be said? Of which of your pains can that be said? Of which of your joys can that be said? I know one of your joys of which that can be said. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 16, it says, Pleasures forevermore are found at His right hand. He remains. All creation wears out and is replaced, but not Him. Now, there, there's, there's one final quotation from the Old Testament. It happens to be the author's favorite. It comes from Psalm 110.1. Look with me at verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
The author alluded to this same Old Testament verse, Psalm 110.1. He alluded to this back in Hebrews 1.4. And he's going to quote the same verse three more times before he's done with this, with this letter. Loves Psalm 110.1. In fact, he loves Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is where he gets the whole Melchizedek thing. He loves this psalm. The, this verse is another reason that we spent so much time on that Davidic math last time. You may, may remember, even when, back when we were in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus Himself quoted Psalm 110.1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus indicated that David must have written that verse, understanding it to refer to a son greater than himself, in that he calls his son Lord. I don't call my sons Lord. But David called his son Lord in Psalm 110.1, indicating that this son, whenever he's coming, he must be a doozy. Yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the King. He's Yahweh who's coming. Psalm 110.1, being an allusion to that Davidic promise, it contains all that Davidic math. And so when the author quotes it, he's identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises of God going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, now think about how it's worded. Look there again at... at at verse 13, Hebrews 1.13. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, th- this verse assumes what, what, what we refer to frequently as, as an already not yet reality to the defeat of God's enemies. Have you heard that phrase before, already not yet? There's an already, not yet, reality to the defeat of God's enemies. We use that phrase to refer to a lot of different things in the Christian life. Already, not yet. There's a sense in which we already have this blessing, and there's a sense in which we do not yet have this blessing. We talk about a lot of different blessings in the Christian life that way. And the defeat of God's enemies is that way. And we're going to find the author of Hebrews thinking with an already not yet mindset about the the defeat of God's enemies and a host of other things as we move through the letter. Christ has died for sin, has risen from the dead, currently sits enthroned on high, and yet... The full experiential defeat of God's enemies is still outstanding. They have not yet received the fullness of justice. The cross and empty tomb have secured the victory against sin and death and and the devil and, and the world that follows Him, but the final application of that victory will only be consummated when Christ returns and casts all His enemies into the lake of fire on the last day. The Davidic king, Jesus Christ, he sits enthroned on high until the day when the Father says, go time, and he will return again and bring final vengeance against evil on the basis of a victory earned 2,000 plus years ago. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now I ask you, To whom else or what else has the Father ever said such a thing? Of what what other thing being exalted in your life could that possibly be said? This has earned the defeat of all God's enemies. Nothing. Only Jesus. Now, in verse 14, the the author of Hebrews, it is as if he kind of takes a breath and says, okay, now let's, let's, let's think then about what all of this means regarding these magnificent creatures, angels, who have been magnified in your minds to justify the plausibility of your returning to Old Testament Judaism. Let's think about what all of this means. If we're thinking rightly about Jesus and we're thinking biblically about angels, what must we say about these beings that you have wrongly exalted? Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits 
sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You and I, you and I are to inherit the salvation that Christ will bring in that sense that I, that I spoke about a moment ago. We will inherit that salvation that Christ will bring in that sense of His final eradication of evil and His ushering in of the new heaven and earth. We will be the heirs of that salvation. And it comes to us by virtue of the finished work of Christ, our Savior and King. What's the role of the angels? The author of Hebrews corrects any wrong thinking by saying, they are ministering spirits to us. They are Christ's servants in the meantime as we are waiting for His return. In other words, angels don't rule, but they serve you on Christ's behalf. And so, we ought not demean angels. None of this is to to demean them. We're not thinking wrongly of them. We're thinking rightly of them. They are servant spirits who worship and serve Christ for, for our benefit. Think rightly of them and think rightly of Him. Thinking rightly of Him is what puts them in their appropriate place. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He alone is worthy of worship and service. He reigns over all. He's the eternal Creator and Lord. Elevate Him to His rightful place in your mind and heart. And and, and let's be reminded briefly the function that this plays in the larger flow of thought as as we're heading into chapter 2, Lord willing, next week. If Christ is that much superior to angels, then we must expect that rejecting His message will be that much more devastating than was rejecting their message. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard regarding the things of Christ. And so, aware that that's coming in chapter 2, The author of Hebrews is magnifying Christ, magnifying Christ in chapter 1 so that the readers will cling desperately to the the message of Christ in chapter 2. Magnify Christ, magnify Christ. And so so we ought to think about that right now as we have have in mind clinging to the message of Christ. What what is something that we do preemptively to, to cling to the message of Christ? We ought to be all about magnifying Christ, magnifying Christ, magnifying Christ. As I I mentioned as we began this morning, our our temptation likely is not to to turn to Old Testament Judaism. And so there likely is no great need for us to to think rightly about the greatness of Christ relative to angels. But it is a virtual certainty that something is vying for our attention. Something is vying for our affections. Things, loves, fears, joys, pains, many of them perhaps associated with the difficulties of of discipleship. These things are being elevated and attenuated. They They are being magnified and minimized all the time, potentially relative to the Lord Jesus Christ. We we could experience any manner of opposition in our Christian life. Could, could be difficulty uh, remaining faithful in the workplace. Could be difficulty reconciling our own experience with what we see in the world. Could be the, the, the trouble of personal injustices suffered as a result of naming the name of Christ. It could be the loss of a relationship because we have followed Jesus. Could be lost opportunities. It could be, and, and this, this may seem counterintuitive, but it happens. It could be the challenge of exceeding temporal joys. I'm going to say that again. It could be the challenge of exceeding temporal joys. Those things themselves, they become exalted or, or they become means of, of, of dealing with difficulties and they then become means of, of luring us away from eternal realities. And in any number of ways, then, there, there can result 
an, an impropriety in terms of what is exalted to the highest place in our minds and hearts, and we begin to drift, drift, drift. Now, perhaps as you think about the state of your own mind and heart, state of your own real profile, it, it may be that you're, you're unaware of anything like that. You're, you're unaware of, of anything actually being exalted above the Lord Jesus. And, and if that's the case, that, that, that's actually fine. Praise the Lord for that. Our application this morning, it, we're, we're going to think of this as something like a preemptive strike against that kind of drifting. And this, this preemptive strike is, is, is a lifestyle of exalting Christ to a place of preeminence in worship. I, I want to give you a, a, a way, one way, of practically magnifying the Lord in your mind and heart on a regular basis. It's something that you could do every day if you wanted to do. It's not the only way to practically exalt Christ. In fact, I highly encourage you to think of other ways, but, but this will serve as a preemptive strike against other things eclipsing Jesus and, and therefore you're drifting away from Him. And so if, if, you're, if you're taking notes, just get, get ready to write a few things down, okay? you're just going to work your way through a series of questions. And, and you could plan to, to write these things out each day. You could, you could plan to just, you're just going to think about these things. You could, you could pray these things as a conversation to the Lord. Whatever. The first question is this. First of all, what are the things I've enjoyed today? What are the things I've enjoyed today? You don't need to be exhaustive. Just what, what's most prominent what are the prominent things that you've enjoyed? Now, take, take a, a thing or two of those. Compare and contrast those things to the Lord Jesus, similar to the way that the author of Hebrews has done with Jesus and the angels here in Hebrews chapter 1. For me, tonight, almost certainly, as I lay in my bed, very easily I, I will be able to say before the Lord, I have... I have thoroughly enjoyed teaching the Word of God. What, what a privilege. And so as, as I compare and contrast that in, in the privacy of my own mind, I would say this was, this was a great blessing. It was a great privilege preaching the Word. But Jesus, Jesus is the Word of God. And, and, and preaching, preaching didn't save me, but Jesus saved me. And were I to lose my faculty of speech, my faculty of thought, my ability to communicate, I would have Jesus, and He cannot be lost to me. See, I'm taking good things, good things, joys, putting them in their rightful place, thanking Him for them but understanding them to be less than Him. He is the great gift. He is the King of my life. So that's the first thing. What, 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 what things have I enjoyed today? A, a second thing, what are the things I've suffered today? What are the things I've suffered today? What, and again, don't go rooting for things. It's not like you have to find something. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was nothing difficult. But whatever's prominent, what immediately pops to your mind? Compare, contrast that thing to the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I, I may not have suffered anything today, but the day is young. Uh, something may come up. But, but, but what this may sound like at the end of the day is something, something like what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 16 through 18. Or 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Or Philippians 3, 8. Where, where Paul takes difficult things, sets them next to Christ, and lets Christ squash them. He, he just and, and he revels in it. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of counting Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rush, rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Oh boy, what 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 a heart washing thing that is! At the end of a day, maybe at the beginning of a day. 
as you look forward to, to what you're fearing in a day or, or what, what you think you may suffer, which brings us to the next question. What are the things I've feared today or, or I do fear today? And this could be f- feared in any sense of the word, okay? Compare and contrast that thing or those things to Christ. So I'm, t- I'm taking my fears and I'm putting them under Christ. And, and, and here I'm seeing Him as worthy of my faith because He's greater than anything that could hurt me. And if something does hurt me, He's sufficient to see me through. The fourth question, what are the things I've loved today? What are the things I've loved today? It could be people, things, experiences. Taking those things, I'm comparing and contrasting those things with the Lord Jesus. Similar to the way that the author of Hebrews has done with angels here in chapter 1. All the things I've loved, I'm just sifting through those things, and perhaps there are things I shouldn't have loved at all. And out of allegiance to Christ, I'm going to repent of those things and cut them off. Now, maybe there are some good things I've loved, but I've loved them inordinately. And so I want to remind myself of His supreme loveliness and goodness, and I'll put these other loves in their rightful subordinate place under Him in my mind and heart. Perhaps I've loved good things in self-centered ways, and in faithfulness to Christ then, I want to follow Him by loving the way that He loves. So so even in the way that I love good things appropriately, I'm elevating Christ by loving the way that He loves. All of this is, is just ways of magnifying Jesus, and there's intentionality to it. Now, to do, to do this exhaustively would take a long time every day. So, so just, again, just take the, the most prominent couple of the things. Now, every, everyone is, is, is different in terms of when might be a good time to do it. I'm not usually out like a light at night, so lying in bed at night is, is a good time for me. My wife falls asleep like she's been sniped getting into bed, so she, she could never do this at night. And for you, might be a good time might be just riding in the car, uh, taking a walk or whatever, but I just suggest that you try it. And as you're comparing and contrasting these things with Jesus, be sure to, to, to use the categories that the author of Hebrews has here in chapter 1. Christ's identity as eternal son and his work in the incarnation. In other words, be biblical about the things that you're thinking about Jesus. The totality of his being as the God-man, everything that he was in eternity past, everything that he was in his incarnation, we want, we want the fullness of the gospel being brought to bear on what is magnificent about Him compared to these other things that we are amazingly exalting above Him. And if we do this, it puts everything in perspective. It will will help us to see, first of all, what, what are the major loves, fears, joys, troubles on our minds and hearts? Secondly, and more importantly, where are those things relative to the Lord Jesus? And comparing and contrasting helps us to put those things in their rightful place. Perish the thought that anything would ever imperil His throne in our thoughts or in our hearts. And I suggest to you that it is imperative to be intentional with this or with something like this because we don't do this automatically. And consider what it means that the author of Hebrews is walking through this with the recipients of this letter. He isn't leaving it to them to do this on their own. He's leading them through these things. And that assumes that intentionality is necessary. It takes intentionality to magnify Christ. And the implication is that when you don't do it intentionally, Christ will inadvertently recede in your mind. He will recede in your heart to the point where other voices are exalted and our perseverance is endangered. That is, we may begin to think it plausible that there is another way to believe. We we, we may begin to think it is plausible that there is another way to live, another way to worship, another way. And there is not. The author of Hebrews suggests in the flow of thought here that the reign of Christ in our minds and hearts is essential to our perseverance in the faith. 
Christ is the Son, the King, worshipped and served by angels. He reigns over all as eternal Creator and Lord. He must be exalted in our minds and hearts. What would He have you to do with these things? Let's pray. Father, you are tremendously kind to us. And were we to even try to enumerate your kindnesses, we would would be failed by time and energy and life itself. But we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for reminding us over and over of, of truths that we know, but that we easily forget and drift away from. We pray, Father, that as we spend a few minutes in silent reflection now, that you would grant us each to do some responsible introspection, that we would be transparent before your Spirit and that you would help us to think through where perhaps are we in danger of drifting? What might we be elevating above the Lord Jesus? And beyond that, Father, would you help us to think about the the wisdom of being intentional and practical about exalting Him? Father, I I pray for for every individual here that, that, that each one of us would be very intentional about magnifying Christ in our minds and hearts, and wh- whether we do it in the way that, that I've just suggested or, or other ways, Lord, Lord, move us to do it. Because if we don't, we will drift. I pray, Father, that you would grant us also to stir one another up, that we would all cling to Jesus by virtue of our having magnified Him to His appropriate place. Pray these things in His name. Amen.